welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Ryan L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Tara Lee Grove, Charles E. Tweedy, Junior Endowed Chairholder in Law at the University of Alabama School of Law. We will discuss her article, Which Textualism, which is published in the Harvard Law Review. So welcome to the show, Tara. Thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you so much for doing this podcast. My my pleasure, and uh, congratulations on publishing in the Harvard Law Review. That's that's really cool and well deserved because this paper is really fantastic, and uh, I learned a lot reading it. Thank you so much. So, for listeners who haven't had a chance to read it yet, I wonder if you could start by introducing uh, them to kind of the conventional wisdom on methods of statutory interpretation. In other words, sort of how have people historically talked about different ways of judges approaching statutory interpretation? Right. So the the conventional divide is between what are called purposivists, um, scholars and judges who look to try to fulfill whatever the underlying purpose of a law might be, um, or intentionalists, people who try to look at what the underlying intent of Congress happened to be, um, or textualists who tend to focus on the words that were enacted by Congress. Now, I want to be be clear that everybody cares to some degree about purpose and everybody cares to some degree about text, but it's a matter of emphasis. Textualists really emphasize the text, whereas purposivists emphasize what the law is trying to do in the view of the judge. Maybe you could give an example of how those would be different or maybe how they might reach different outcomes. Right. So, um, for example, there's a there's a pretty famous case in the world of statutory interpretation called TVA versus Hill, and that statute involved the Endangered Species Act and a particular a particular construction project that would affect the snail daughter. And so, one can say the Endangered Species Act was in, intended to the design of it was to protect endangered species, um, but maybe not to the exclusion of everything else. Um, And in that case, the question was, well, did Congress mean when it enacted the Endangered Species Act to completely undo this huge construction project um, that might impact this tiny little animal, the snail darter? And a a purposivist might very well say, uh, no, that's crazy. Um, You'd never want to completely undermine, Congress never would have wanted to undermine uh, a huge construction project in order to protect this tiny snail darter. Um, And the textualist says, well, that's kind of what the text says. Um, And that is ultimately what the U.S. Supreme Court held um, in an opinion by Chief Justice Berger with a very strong dissent saying, hey, that's that's crazy. Um, So you can have situations where um, textualists would say, look, it may not It may not be what we thought Congress was trying to do, but these are the words that Congress enacted. So this is the law that came out of the process with the House of of Representatives and the Senate and the president. Well, so what are the kind of traditional arguments in favor and against textualism and our purposivism or intentionalism? So I think a lot of it has to do with our understanding of the lawmaking process. Textualists see the lawmaking process as a lot of lawmakers getting together and making compromises and deals, and that what comes out of that process may involve lots of compromises that don't necessarily make perfect sense, uh, but were necessary to get some lawmakers to sign on to the ultimate ultimate bargain. 
And so by enforcing the specific provisions of the text, we enforce those bar- bargains and often enforce the, the rights of political minorities. A purposivist would say, look, the lawmaking process is messy. That's true. Um, but because of that, stuff just doesn't get done in the lawmaking process. And sometimes courts need to kind of clean it up and to look to what the law was trying to do, even if the terms of the statute don't quite get you there. So it's a broader role for the for the judiciary in many cases. Historically, there's been this kind of debate or back and forth between textualists and proposivists or interpretivist positions on statutory interpretation. Why is textualism especially important right now? So I think textualism is important because so many members of the federal judiciary are textualists or care deeply about the text. And even for people, whether they are judges or scholars, who call themselves purposivists, they care far more about the text than they did, say, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, And I think that's a really important thing. The movement of textualism that got started around the 1980s, modern textualism, it has had an impact not only by convincing lots more people to become textualists, but also by influencing the way that purposivism itself is done with a greater greater focus on the text. Um, I think an increasing number of judges, though, do call themselves textualists, even though uh, not very many academics (laughs) call themselves textualists, not yet anyway. Your paper is primarily pointing out and reflecting on a kind of divide within textualism, which I haven't seen discussed very extensively before. I wonder if you could kind of lay out what the distinction you see is and how the approaches differ from each other. Right. So so this paper was actually inspired, this project was inspired by um, an earlier project that I did on interpreting presidential directives. Um, and in the process of working on that project, I, I read up a lot on statutory interpretive theory. Um, I taught statutory interpretation very early on in my career. That was a little, little over a decade ago. But I hadn't focused so much on that. Much of my career has been spent on the judiciary, judicial legitimacy, which also are, are themes of this paper. Um, but a couple of years ago, I got back into, into interpretive theory. And what I found was the, the theory on textualism was a bit of a mess and that many different things coming under the auspices of textualism um, were, uh, were happening and weren't being talked about. Uh, when I got the opportunity to write about Bostock versus Clayton County, that turned out to be a wonderful opportunity um, to talk about these issues. So let me just say a word about Bostock. So um, for, for, I suspect this case is familiar to many people. Bostock versus Clayton County involved whether Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination applies to the LGBTQ community. Um, is the disparate treatment of a gay or lesbian or transgender individual discrimination because of such person's sex. Um, And what's really interesting is in in this case, the majority opinion and the dissenting opinions both purport to be textualist, but they're doing very different things. Um, And in my view, having looked at the literature before Bostock came down, these majority and dissenting opinions are actually reflective of larger divides within textualism. So I say that the majority opinion is is applying what I'm calling formalistic textualism, really drilling down on 
the words enacted by Congress, the semantic context, and not worrying so much about policy concerns or the practical consequences. In this case, the court says, okay, well, terminating a male employee because he is romantically attracted to men or dismissing an employee after she announces a transition from female to male, that sure seems like discrimination because of such individual sex, because the employer would not terminate a female employee for being romantically attracted to men, um, and the employer would not terminate someone who had not made such a transition. So the court says it seems pretty straightforward. This is discrimination because of because of such individual sex, Title VII violation. Um, and the opinion is written by Justice Gorsuch and signed on by Chief Justice Roberts, um, as well as the members of the court that are considered to be in kind of the liberal wing of the court. So it was a six to three decision. And it surprised a lot of people that Justice Gorsuch would say this, but but he did. And it's a very much a focus on the words and saying, okay, let's figure out what these words mean, and then we'll apply them to this particular scenario. It doesn't matter if Congress was thinking about the LGBTQ community when it enacted Title VII in 1964. Um, Chances are many members of Congress were not thinking about that at all. What matters is the law that Congress enacted, um, and then we'll apply it to this factual scenario. The dissenting opinions did something very different they applied what I call a more flexible textualism. Justice Alito's dissenting opinion says, look, 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 we can't just focus on these words irrespective of how the public would have understood them in 1964. We have to think about how the public would have seen them. And both dissenting opinions focus on this. Justice Kavanaugh calls it common parlance from 1964 to the present. And Justice Alito calls it social context. And Justice Alito says, you know, in 1964, ordinary Americans would have never understood a prohibition on discrimination because of sex in such individual sex to apply to sexual orientation or gender identity. These concepts were barely understood at the time. If they were understood, um, Discrimination against gays and lesbians was often accepted in 1964, Justice Alito says, and the concept of gender identity was just basically misunderstood, unknown. And Justice Kavanaugh says, yes, this is just not the way that people would have used the words discrimination because of because of such individuals' sex. Um, and I call this flexible textualism, not only because the, the justices are looking at social context. They're kind of going beyond the words to what the public, how the public would have expected those words to apply. So it looks a little bit like public expectations. Um, And Justice Alito's opinion in particular is really worried about the consequences of the court's decision. He says the court is, the majority opinion is, is being irresponsible, he says, by not considering how this opinion might change our society by changing things like sex, seg- sex segregated bathrooms or dress codes. And this is really terrible, Justice Leto says, um, that the court is not, not considering these issues. And what's very interesting about the court's, the, the dissenting opinions, um, and, I, and I've heard this from um, several people who've read the, read the paper, um, you kind of wonder, is this even textualism? Because the dissenting opinions seem to be going 
a little bit outside of the text, or maybe a lot outside of the text, to how the public would have expected the text to apply. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually very sympathetic to the argument that that's not real textualism. Um, I advocate the formalistic kind in my paper. But I think these dissenting opinions allow us to kind of look at other ways in which textualists really aren't true to the words enacted by Congress. There are lots of places where textualists are willing to go outside of those words and look at things like social and policy context, normative concerns, and practical consequences. And I I mentioned some normative canons. There's a canon called the absurdity doctrine that says, if the result would be absurd, then a judge should not enforce it. Um, And many textualists adhere to that doctrine, even though that very much involves going beyond the words enacted by Congress. And textualists apply other normative canons, like canons protecting state sovereign immunity and other things that kind of take them outside of the words enacted by Congress. And the point, one one of the central points of the paper is to say that both of these versions of textualism exist. Um, You could either see them as two different categories. I think it's probably more likely to, it's better to see them as two different poles, a more formalistic or a more flexible version. Um, And to get people to really drill down on that, um, and in my case, also to argue for the more formalistic kind. Do you think this dialectic or divergence between formalistic and flexible textualism is a newly developing dichotomy or something that's been there for a long time that people just haven't paid attention to? So that is, that's a really, really good question. I think it's, it's hard to say. Um, My own view is it's probably, it's been beneath the surface for at least a couple of decades. Um, It's hard to know if it's been below the surface longer than that, because textualism was outright rejected by the judiciary for so much of the 20th century. Um, and it came into it came into play more um, starting the 1980s when Justice Scalia joined the Supreme Court. Judge Easterbrook on the Seventh Circuit was a strong advocate of textualism, and gradually their ideas got to be more prominent. But when there aren't many textualists, period, on the judiciary, um, it's harder to, to find divides among them. I think that one of the reasons we're seeing divides now is that textualism has gained prominence. And often what happens with an interpretive theory, once it gains prominence, is that you start to see divisions within that interpretive theory because not everybody agrees on how it should work. I wonder if we could return for a moment to Title VII and the disagreement about its meaning in the Bostock opinion. Um, because as you recognize in in your paper, there's a sense among a lot of or certain group of scholars that Title VII was actually a really radical statute in some ways, and that the courts kind of did a lot of work initially to tame down or constrain the literal meaning of the words in the statute. And it seems to me that these two different positions, at least in relation to a statute, like that one, get it different ways of thinking about, you know, at what point in time and how are you supposed to understand what the words in a statute do and mean? Right. So in my paper, I talk about the history of of Title VII um, and the judicial treatment of this of the provision the the prohibition on sex discrimination, and that's for a couple of reasons. Um, 
I want to I want to note all of them. Uh, one is to set to help readers understand the Bostock versus Clayton County decision. Um, another is to pay homage to the many scholars who have have gotten us here. Um, and I and I do want to note that there are many really brilliant employment discrimination scholars who have focused on Title VII sex discrimination provision and and. One sort of subsidiary goal of that section for me was let me pay homage to all the all these great scholars. Um, so if you don't mind, I want to name a few of them, just to um, just to just to say thank you for because their work was very helpful to me as I worked on this project. Um, people like Marianne Case and Jessica Clark, Katie Iyer, Bill Eskridge, Carrie Franklin, Andy Koppelman. Um, many of these folks have also been kind enough to to comment on my paper, so I'm I'm grateful for that as well. Um, but I'll tell you, my, my main goal here was to change some assumptions about textualism. I am an atypical textualist uh, right now. Um, textualists are often presumed to be uh, conservative, often male. Um, I, I'm neither of those things. I am left of center and female. Um, and and I think I think it's, it's very interesting to me that textualism has this association with the conservative legal movement. Um, I think that's in part because it was spearheaded by Justice Scalia and Judge Easterbrook, who are presumed to be affiliated with the conservative legal movement. But I think it's also because we've forgotten a lot of the history um, of, of how purposivism actually worked. Um, and so this provision, this, this portion of the paper is designed to show how purposivism worked in the hands of judges in the wake of 1964. So what did judges do? Um, and this, of course, as, as you know from reading the paper, it's not just about the LGBTQ community in the 1960s and 70s. It's about the treatment of um, any kind of discrimination against women or men. So there was this provision that said um, barred employers from discrimination, discriminating because of such individual sex. So some women were barred from employment because, say, they got married. This happened to to flight attendants who they were called who were called stewardesses and were exclusively female at the time. So flight attendants, if they if they got older or got married, they got fired, and they sued for sex discrimination. And what the court said is, well, you weren't fired because you're a woman. You were fired because you got married and you're getting old and ugly. Um, in sexual harassment cases, courts would say things like, well, you didn't get fired because you're a woman. You got fired because you wouldn't date the boss. And I, to, to us now, this seems comical. Um, and yet this is actually the way the courts thought at the time. And they thought it in part because of how they perceived the purpose um, and legislative history of Title VII. They perceived the purpose of Title VII to be exclusively about racial discrimination, that the sex sex provision was added to Title VII as a poison pill. Um, in fact, I was giving a talk recently, and um, another speaker described it as a poison pill, and and therefore Congress really didn't mean to do anything with the prohibition on sex discrimination. It was just a um, just to throw out there to by Southern Democratic senators, uh, Southern Democratic members of Congress, who were trying to get rid of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, a lot of scholars, including the ones I, I named a few minutes ago, have just decimated 
this argument that the prohibition on sex discrimination was only a poison pill. It, actually, if you look at the full legislative history, um, it, there's, it's a mixture, right? So there's some legislative history indicating that it was a poison pill and other legislative history indicating that, no, actually, members of Congress wanted to change tr- traditional gender roles. Um, and for a textualist, that kind of points to one of the big problems with legislative history, that judges kind of pick out whatever they want to support their positions. But it also points to a problem with purposivism, because the way that judges conceived of the purpose of that law as being about racial discrimination and not other stuff, despite the fact that a lot of other stuff is listed in, in Title VII, it prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, um, national origin, religion, and sex. Um, people really, really ignored the overall purpose. And this, of course, created problems not only for um, men and men and women who were claiming discrimination based on um, traditional male-female divides, but also for the LGBTQ community, uh, because there were claims brought by gays and lesbians and transgender individuals and other folks, even in the 1970s, and courts rejected those out of hand as well, saying, well, um, that's not really what this this law was was meant to do. Now, what is what does this tell us? This is actually something I would like to get into in later work. Um, I think there's often an assumption um, that textualism, as I said, textualism is, is a conservative methodology um, and anti-change. And I think that is a misconception. And I think the story of Title VII very much tells us it's a misconception. Um, it is certainly true that law often does not change without social movements. Um, the social movements that the women's rights movement, the movement in favor of LGBTQ equality, these were huge in influencing the way that judges thought about Title VII. But to make those movements work, we needed to have the text. Congress gave us the words that were necessary for massive reform in 1964. But what we also needed was to convince a lot of judges um, who in 1964, um, especially in the lower courts, were almost exclusively white and male and from a very different generation of time, they needed to be convinced as to how that law would actually be applied. There are some indications that had courts been more textualist at the time, they might have ruled in favor of more plaintiffs a lot sooner. Now, that's very hard to prove. I, I can't say that for certain. Uh, but, but I think textualism really can move in conjunction with social movements. Sometimes judges just need to be hit over the head to apply the text appropriately. Well, it seems like Title VII and the Bostock opinion in particular are a really fantastic kind of crystalline example of how uh, the kind of formalistic textualism you're suggesting can be used in service of progressive social change. But for people who care about that primarily, are there any reasons you think to be concerned about textualism and the kind of formalism you're suggesting? Like, you know, are there times when it might not necessarily come out the way that they want? And are there reasons for people in that kind of camp to um, to accept or or be comfortable with that approach anyway? So 
So it's a very fair question. I, I believe that um, if one applies textualism, and this is one of the central arguments of the latter part of my paper, it will lead um, to either progressive results um, or conservative results, depending on what the text actually says. Um, in the case of Title VII, this is a very progressive text, right? This was a, a law that was that transforms the employment employer employee relationship. Um, so, I, I I've been asked about um, whether employers should have been on notice as to this massive change, and of, of course. Once once Title VII is enacted, it puts people on on notice that there are massive changes, even if they don't know exactly what those changes might be. But that's not a guarantee of progressive results. It really depends on the text that that Congress enacts. Um, so so I think one of the big questions facing the legal community right now, um, and this is true whether one is. Um, a progressive or a, a conservative, um, and there are, there are social movements on both sides. Um, a, a huge question is, is, what do we want the law to do? Do we want the law, do we want legal interpretation to get us certain results? Or do we want legal interpretation, the law, um, to hew as closely to whatever it is Congress enacted um, and to constrain judges to do that, whatever it is Congress enacted, on the understanding that it will sometimes lead to results that make progressives happy and other times lead to results that make conservatives happy. My vision of law is that it should be something that um, does not serve a particular political view um, and that is my, my view of, of interpretation. I think that's the way the law should work. Um, in the latter part of my paper, I argue that that actually enhances the legitimacy of the judiciary to have a constraining form of textualism that leads someone like Justice Gorsuch to issue a result that makes, makes progressives very happy in a case like Bostock versus Clayton County, but might lead a justice like, say, Justice Kagan to, um, to issue an opinion that makes conservatives happy in a different case. Um, to my mind, that's actually a very good thing. And it sort of undercuts the uh, the assumption that I think is very prominent today that presidents and senators can use the Article II appointments process to just to get judges on the Supreme Court and lower federal courts who will do whatever the presidents and senators want them to do, whether this is a Republican president, Republican Senate, or a Democratic president and Democratic Senate. Um, I think that's very problematic for the judiciary. Um, so that's my reason for advocating this type of, of textualism. Your question is very interesting, though, because one of the things that has come out of Bostock um, is a conservative movement backlash against textualism. There are some, uh, this has not been true among academics who favor textualism, the, the few that there are. Um, but it has been true among some some conservative commentators in the political realm who said, wait, if textualism gives us this kind of result, that's not what we want. Um, and my thought is, well, this is that was never the promise of textualism. It never promised particular results. But it's very interesting to see that reaction because I think this really does um, drill down on a fundamental a fundamental disagreement about what law should be doing and what interpretive methodology should be doing. Um, and I have my own perspective, but I think others have 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 different have their own perspectives as well. 
Well, so one question that was kind of nagging at me a little bit when I was reading the article was, what about absurd results? So you talk about the kind of the absurdity doctrine, and I think provides some pretty compelling reasons to think that it was deployed in a maybe somewhat disingenuous way. Um, and I think the point you make is about, you know, there's legislation that was produced by progressive sort of forces and progress and legislation that was produced by more conservative sources. And the kind of, um, the kind of approach that you're advocating does seem consistent with producing results consistent with the intentions more or less of highly negotiated legislation. But I mean, let's be honest, sometimes Congress just like phones it in and doesn't try that hard. What, what then? Right. So I think one of the questions that I, I think people often ask of textualists is, um, or say about textualism is, well, w- w- what good does that do when the text is unclear, um, when it's am- ambiguous? And I think there is an assumption um, that if one is a textualist, one believes that the text always gives clear answers. Um, and I think some textualists have said that in the past. I don't think Justice Scalia always believed this, but there were times when he would say that, well, if, if I'm applying the text and I'm always going to know the answer or often going to know the answer, that is not my view. I, I actually do think the text was clear in Bostock versus Clayton County. Um, I think it is clear in other cases. I think it is clear in a case like TVA versus Hill. Um, another famous case in statutory interpretation is Holy Trinity Church, um, which involved uh, a statutory, statutory provision that pro- prohibited people from employing foreigners um, and undocumented individuals. And yet the court said, well, that doesn't apply when a church wants to get a pastor over from, from England, um, which was contrary to the text. But the court said, well, Congress didn't intend to, to mess with pastors. Um, I think there are situations where the text is very clear. I think there are also plenty of situations where the text is not clear. So then what do you do? Um, and then we get into questions about, well, who gets to answer the question? Um, and these, these, are, these are questions about deference to administrative agencies, or do federal courts basically have federal common lawmaking authority? I am quite comfortable, actually, with deference to administrative agencies. Um, I think that is not, um, not a view of of all textualists, but I'm quite comfortable with that. So my thought is if the text is unclear, there may be another entity that can answer the question. Um, And if there isn't, then it may be that the courts actually have federal common lawmaking power or duty in order to resolve cases. Um, But this is not necessarily interpreting the text of the law, um, but rather acknowledging that the text is, is unclear. So I think that can often happen. What worries me when people bring up things like the absurdity doctrine is that um, I think when Congress does something that seems surprising or unusual, um, the assumption is, well, judges can clean it up. Um, And that takes us into sort of the the world of purposivism. And I don't assume um, that judges should clean it up. I actually don't think think they should. Um, And I think that when when judges are given a license to clean up a statute, whether it's called purpose of interpretation or textualism with the absurdity doctrine tacked on, um, it allows judges to bring their own priors into the case where they don't belong. Um, And 
a good portion of my paper is is expressing concern about judicial discretion. Um, and I think it's very important for judges to try to put their own ideological priors, their own personal priors to the side and decide cases based on the law. Um, and that's in part because, you know, judges are not representative of the broader public, right? They, um, they come from a certain segment of society that doesn't necessarily relate to all of society. Um, and I don't think that judges should be bringing their personal predilections um, into, into the legal analysis. So Tara, in closing, another thing that struck me reading your paper was that in a way I felt like so much of it was an analogy or at least comparable to the kinds of differences of opinion we have about how to go about engaging in constitutional interpretation as well. And I wonder if you think the kind of framework observations, um, kind of ways of describing the different approaches to thinking about what judges can and should do when they interpret statutes are relevant at all to thinking about constitutional interpretation as well? So wonderful question. I, I do think that some of the concerns about judicial legitimacy, the role of the Article Three courts in the, in the broader scheme should also play a role in constitutional interpretation. I have not yet decided for myself what role that should be. Um, I, um, I actually do not assume that methods of statutory interpretation obviously carry over into the constitutional realm. Um, I think that some of the ideas probably do, other ideas should not, but we need to take, in, take into account the very different nature of constitutional enactment, constitutional development, um, and the different nature of our, of our U.S. Constitution. And so I, I have bracketed any, any thoughts about constitutional interpretation for the purposes of this project, because um, I need to give that a lot more thought. Constitutional interpretation is hard in part because so much of the U.S. Constitution really does delegate to future entities, um, whether it be congressional implementation of the Constitution, um, in some cases executive implementation, and in other cases judicial implementation. And so I think the text gets us even less far with respect to the U.S. Constitution than it does with respect to many federal statutes. Um, but I want to think long and hard about my own approach to constitutional interpretation um, before, before assuming that all of the arguments that I make here carry over. Mm. Well, Tara, thanks so much for coming on the program to talk about this excellent paper. I really couldn't recommend it more highly to listeners. Uh, like usual, we've only scratched the surface, but there's a ton going on in there. And I learned a lot reading it and talking to you about it. Thank you so much. Tumble
Darling. 